This is episode 183 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you by listeners just like you who signed up to become members here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to exclusive content not available anywhere else, including detailed show notes, virtual tours, history documentaries, and so much more. Find out more and sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. I'm Bob Behrman. I used to be head of archives at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. I'm now an honorary research fellow at the University of Birmingham. And another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this, It's That Shakespeare Life, with my friend Cassidy Cash. So here is this poor woman. What happened to her? She gives birth in the street and is found to be frantic found to be mad you know this and and sent to Bethlehem and and we we hear nothing more of her there's no clear distinction between the crime and being lunatic here welcome to that Shakespeare life with Cassidy Cash Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's Henry VI, Part Two, Lord Clifford exclaims, To bedlam with him! Is the man grown mad? That's from Act 5, Scene 1. This use of the word bedlam, both as a place associated with madness, is because there's a real bedlam hospital within steps of the Curtain and Globe theaters where this play was performed in the 16th century, and because that hospital specialized in care for the insane. Bedlam Hospital was a psychiatric hospital in early modern London. It was founded in the mid-13th century in service to the Church of Bethlehem as a house for the poor. By the time Henry VIII gave administrative control of Bedlam to the city of Bethlehem in 1547, it had become a hospital for the nation's mentally ill, and specifically those who were considered violent or dangerous. Initially, the term Bedlam was an informal name, but by the time Shakespeare was writing about Bedlam in Henry VI Part II, the word Bedlam was part of everyday speech, defined as madness or chaos. In addition to Shakespeare's eight uses of Bedlam across his works, Bedlam Hospital itself was staged in many early modern plays, including The Duchess of Malfi by John Webster and Bartholomew Fair by Ben Jonson, among many others during the early 1600s. One potential reason for the popularity of using Bedlam in early modern plays can be attributed to the display of insane people that began in London in 1576 as a way to raise money for the hospital. Bedlam Hospital continues in operation today as a psychiatric hospital with one of their specialist services, including the National Psychosis Unit. Here today to help us understand the history of Bedlam Hospital and what it is important to know when we see Shakespeare referencing this hospital in his plays is our guest, Duncan Salkeld. Duncan Salkeld is Professor Emeritus of Shakespeare and Renaissance Literature at the University of Chichester and visiting professor at the University of Roehampton. He is author of three monographs, Madness and Drama in the Age of Shakespeare, Shakespeare Among the Courtesans, Prostitution, Literature, and Drama, and Shakespeare and London. He is also the author of numerous articles and book chapters. He runs specialist online courses in early modern paleography. Find out more about Duncan and his classes in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Duncan. Welcome back to the show. So nice to have you here with us again. Thank you so much. Great to see you. 
In terms of physical location, how far away from theaters like the Globe or the Curtain in London was Bedlam Hospital located? Bedlam Hospital was situated just outside Bishopsgate, a little north of the city wall on the western side of the road leading north up to Shoreditch. Just to the south of Bethlehem, you had St Botolph's Church and a grand house uh, across the road called Fisher's Folly, very fine house, and a large inn used by travellers to and from the north called the Dolphin Inn. And its site was pretty much where Liverpool Street Station now stands. And as the crow flies, Bethlehem stood around 500 metres south of the Curtain Theatre, which was probably built, I think, before 1576. Some people think it was afterwards. Anyway, it, and it was about a mile away from where the Globe was on the bank side. So the nearest playing spaces to Bethlehem were the inns on Bishopsgate Street and Gracechurch Street. These were galleried, uh, pubs with galleried yards that could be used for theatrical performances of different kinds. Um, people making their way to the theatre or curtain up in Shoreditch from the western edges of the city might have easily made their way through more fields, perhaps Finsbury fields, fields very close to Bethlehem. But what really marks Bethlehem out is its sort of separateness from other London institutions, I think. It's very separate, for example, from its parent institution, Bridewell, and separate from St Mary's Spittal, just north and east of Shoreditch. So Shakespeare, of course, lived in Bishopsgate in 1593-7 and acted in Shoreditch, so he might well have been very conscious of Bedlam's reputation, perhaps also of some of its inmates. But the plays that represent Bedlamites, people in Bedlam, tend to be Jacobean plays. And those plays are written after the theatre has been removed from Shoreditch to build the Globe in 1599 on the South Bank. And after the Curtain Theatre has largely, not perhaps not entirely, fallen into uh, disuse. And I think, um, you know, the, so, so, so the, you know, the, the dramatists are doing different things with Bedlam. The Jacobean playwrights, the city comedy writers, are using it for satirical purposes. Shakespeare, for something, I think, rather different. In 1598, an oversight committee inspected Bedlam Hospital and found 21 inmates, only two having been admitted that previous year. Now, London was considerably smaller in the 16th and 17th century than it is today, obviously, but proportionately, it was still a large city. And this number of patients seems really small to me. Why weren't there more patients? Well, Bethlehem was a very small precinct founded initially in 1247. And Buildings were added in the 15th century, but its reputation far outstrips its size. You know, it's really a tiny building. You can see it on the Agas map, it's a rectangular, horizontal rectangular building in the Bethlehem precinct. Uh, a, a survey in, in 1598 describes its buildings as in an appalling state. It's run by a single keeper. And probably it was a, a, a place simply of, of neglect and brutalization. It moved site. It's you know currently it, it was initially built on the site of what is now Liverpool Street Station. Then in 1676 it moved a little further away to Moorfields, just to the west, uh, and then it moved in 1815 to Southwark, and and then then to Beckenham, Kent. But of course there were hundreds and hundreds, thousands of psychologically traumatized or disturbed people in in early modern England. And it could only house about 30 patients maximum. If in 1600 the population is 200,000, 30 people is nothing. You know? So you can imagine that most of the 
most of the people who were sort of deemed mad or melancholy or you know troubled in mind in some way or other were cared for by their families or by friends private institutions for housing the insane don't really emerge until the later 17th century municipal asylums or infirmaries not found until well into the 18th century and sometimes you know you would have interference by the court of wards and liveries which was a very corrupt institution if you had a an insane parent then you, you know, the court wards and liveries would step in to allocate or provide a guardian for for uh, the children who might inherit but that was a that was a dreadful system why were there not more patients well there were that there were plenty of people suffering um richard napier uh, whose records still a doctor and astrologer from bedfordshire um, saw hundreds of people who were what he called troubled in mind or melancholic or stricken with grief uh, so we can only guess at the kinds of trauma that people had to deal with, the shock of child mortality, for example, the consequences of rape or violent attack, perhaps overwhelming religious guilt or anxiety. All of these things are going to affect an awful lot of people, but Bethlehem can't possibly deal with, with them. There's no infrastructure and there's no medical knowledge really either. In 1610, Lord Percy, English aristocrat, is recorded paying 10 shillings to walk through Bedlam Hospital to observe the insane. His visit is within striking distance of Decker and Middleton's The Honest Whore, which was published in 1604, and uses Bedlam as a setting for that play. Was visiting the hospital to watch the insane patients in their rooms considered a form of entertainment in Shakespeare's lifetime? And was there a connection between this public display and the theatre? Well, I think there was. In um, Ben Jonson's uh, Bartholomew Fair in Act 1, Scene 5, Wasp remarks, how sharp you are with being at Bethlehem yesterday. Whetstone has set an edge upon you, has he? Now, Wasp is here addressing Mistress Overdue, who's going to Bartholomew Fair, but also wants, has been, obviously, from this line, been to see the inmates at Bethlehem. Whetstone has set an edge upon you. Whetstone, William Whetstone was a young man who's brought in to Bridewell for, in 1606 for shouting in church and arguing with the preachers repeatedly. He's a very disturbed young man. He's arrested again for wandering the streets, very disturbed. And he finally ends up in 1620, in a 1624 list of patients at Bethlehem, where he's described as not fit to be kept. So Johnson is here referring at the, in the beginning of, of Bartholomew Fair to a fairly colourful, characterful, so pretty well-known, if he's going to be mentioned in a play, inmate in Bethlehem. So there's a kind of filter from, you know, the medical case and from the history of Bethlehem into the literary drama. We tend to find Bethlehem re Bedlamites represented in Jacobean plays, uh, Decker's The Honest Whore, Part One, The Duchess of Malfi, Be Beaumont and Fletcher's The Pilgrim. And in these sort of dramatic depictions of Bedlamites set in the confines of Bedlam, we, we seem to get the impression that, you're, the, that the mad people's professions are kind of insignificant. It's as though, you know, if you're a lawyer or a, a very religious person, a priest, or you're, you uh, are even a shoemaker or a fishmonger, you're more likely to be, go mad, to be insane and end up in Bethlehem. So there's a kind of joke going on. So I think the Bedlamite scenes in, in these plays are mainly satirical. Uh, it's interesting in, in The Duchess of Malfi that almost all the Bedlamites seem to be fixated and preoccupied with women's bodies. And in fact, the madness, the lycanthropy of Ferdinand in The Duchess of Malfi is put down to a rumour about a woman who's haunting him. 
And it's only a fleeting suggestion. But I think, you know, if you compare Shakespeare's representation of madness in um, in, in King Lear, it's, it's very open, isn't it? But, you know, he's, Lear and particularly Edgar in that sort of mimicking role of poor Tom, you know, Edgar enacts the jabbering, wild speech of the, the lunatics who wandered the country lanes, possibly from London to Stratford. And, and you know, King Lear kind of has this, this extraordinary depiction of the maims, you know, the blind Gloucester, the lunatic king. And we get this sort of maimed language in Edgar and the riddling fool. And you also get this sort of, you get restless language and energy in Edgar's speech. And then, and Lear's extraordinary lines that every time you go past a, a homeless person sleeping in a doorway, you can't help but think of it, you know, Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. How shall your houseless heads and unfettered sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. And it seems that play is as much about disability as anything else. I've read that in the 1700s, some patients were committed to Bedlam as a result of their, quote, immoral living, and that the public visitations were touted by some as a moral lesson intended to warn against loose living and indulgence of Mm. vice. None of those definitions sound to me today with my modern ears as worthy of calling someone insane. Duncan, do these records indicate that some people housed in Bedlam were not actually insane by modern psychological standards, but were instead simply living outside of what the government determined was morally acceptable? What were the crimes someone could commit to be sent to Bedlam in the first place? Yeah, a lot of the instances are more sort of local than that, than the, the, not so much government involvement. But in 1574, Thomas Cowley is prosecuted for, and I quote, sending his wife to Bedlam, saying she was mad being not mad, which he did to no other intent but to keep a harlot. And his wife saith that he and his t- harlot tied her to the bedstock six weeks together and had almost fam- famished her. And on the same day, the court ordered that Brockus the painter shall have home his wife, which is in Bedlam, for that she is not mad. And the very, very following year, 1575, Roger Colwyn, who hath continued in Bedlam as a lunatic person and hath counterfeited to be mad and is not mad, uh, it is ordered to seek his friends. And Marjorie Young, same year, ordered to a prison for that she feigned herself mad in the counter, the counter prison, and would not be quiet. So she's trying to be, you know, she's pr- imprisoned in the counter and trying to get out of it by pretending to be mad. So that's sort of counterfeiting. It, it happened. But uh, again, in 1575, we have cases of like Catherine Fletcher sent in by the keeper of Bedlam for she most filthily hath run abroad in the streets, taken up her clothes openly, showing her privy members for which she had correction. In other words, she was whipped and then she sent out of London. And in 1598, Elizabeth Branford called Ma- Mad Bess, and I'm quoting here, sent into this house for a vagrant and abusing herself in the street was punished. So in these cases, you've probably got very disturbed people who are behaving sort of in, in a socially unacceptable way, but um, very disturbed people. And all the Bridewell magistrates, magistrates can do is see the crime. You know, they can't see the trauma. They can't see the suffering or the condition. They just see the crime. And so they're punished, they're whipped. When you read about people who were housed at Bedlam Hospital, they're often referred to as inmates instead of patients, which was surprising to me since it's a hospital. Duncan, was there a distinction made between someone who was insane and someone who was a criminal in terms of their treatment at this hospital? Were there people that were being sent there to be cured? 
we have two lists of patients in, in, that survive in the Bridewell archives, one in 1598, where the house is in a terrible state of decay, not fit for human habitation, and 1624, which is where Whetstone appears. And when we look at these lists, we see that they're very long-term patients. Some of them have been there 25 years or so. And why, why is that? It's because they are an income stream. These patients in Bridewell, a mix, pretty much even split of men and women, these patients are supported by various funding bodies. So the, the aldermen pay for one. The Lord Mayor's office or Lord, Mayor's, uh, um, Lord Mayor himself pays for another, as it were. Another is founded, funded by the Company of Skinners, one by Lady Stafford, another by the Benchers of Gray's Inn, um, another from Bartholomew's Hospital. One Anthony Green, fellow of Pembroke Hall in Cambridge, is mad. They're funded by the Archbishop of Canterbury's office, actually through Lancelot Andrews. Another is funded by the Dutch Church. So as long as these, this funding is coming in, then the keeper of Bridewell, who uh, Bethlehem, sorry, uh, hospital, can farm off all the money and do what he wants and keep these poor people in a destitute, dreadful, terrible condition, loathsomely and filthily kept it was in 1598. In 1607, here's the thing, Ellen Skelton is a vagrant, okay, so that's a crime, okay, but she's brought in by the constables of the Bread Street Watch, having given birth in the street, and she appears frantic, so she's kept at Bridewell for a couple of days until she's grown stronger, and then she's sent to Bedlam. So here is this poor woman. What happened to her? Was she raped in the fields or in the lane? She gives birth in the street and is found to be frantic, found to be mad. You know this, and and sent to Bethlehem, and, and we we hear nothing more of her. There's no clear distinction between the crime and being lunatic here, and and I think people's suffering and trauma is is barely recognised. Bridewell will will happily whip a pregnant woman just because they see the crime. Um, occasionally they'll defer the punishment until after she's given birth, but they, they, they don't really worry about that. Interestingly, in the 1624 list, there's a John Gibbons born in Oxfordshire who claims to own land on Bankside, and he claims to own the Pike Gardens, King's Pike Gardens, fish ponds, and a playhouse. He claims to own a play in 1624, and that playhouse is the Hope pretty short which and this estate henry elms in fleet street did beguire him or beggar him did get off him and there's a henry helms or henry yeah henry helms in the jester gray Orum of 1594 lord of misrule the prince of purple so did henry helms having a legal training beggar john gibbons out of the ownership of that land where the hope playhouse stood well we don't know what kind of scientific understanding of psychiatric disease was available in Shakespeare's lifetime? Would the doctors at Bedlam have had any concept of things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or other middle, mental illnesses? Well, I want to a- answer this with some nuance, because on the one hand, um, everybody believed in the theory of the humours, and uh, that was, of course, nonsense. On the other hand, there were doctors who were noticing the various aspects of madness, you know, so so they didn't quite, they split it into different kinds of madness, strange imaginings, fantasy, frenzy, uh, lethargy, fury, epilepsy, sometimes they use that word, and mania as well. Richard Hunter and Ida McAlpine's book, 300 Years of Psychiatry, 1963, is a really fascinating resource for this kind of thing. It's certainly clear that there were doctors at the time who took 
uh, understanding a condition quite seriously and seeing that it had connections to diet or to uh, religion, to uh, various kinds of anxiety or other mental states. Uh, and, you, and you get that sort of breadth of view in a, a way in uh, Burton's 1621 Anatomy of Melancholy, I suppose. But the, you know, uh, if you're asking me, did they have any understanding of bipolar or schizophrenia or other illnesses, the rather sad and quick and short answer is no. The, Helkiah Crook, aptly named, I might say, was the first trained keeper at Bethlehem, medical, medically trained keeper at Bethlehem. But as his name suggests, he was more of a charlatan than a, a practitioner. And the, the story of his regime at um, Bethlehem is, is just one of neglect and abuse. If I can add, though, you know, Shakespeare's very interested in this. I, I say, you know, doctors took the many faces of madness quite seriously, and so did Shakespeare. You know, if you think of um, these men who were falling apart in Shakespeare, you think obviously of Lear, also Othello, Macbeth, Timon, Coriolanus, Pericles, Leontes, they're in meltdown. And I, I think, you know, what Shakespeare did in Richard II was really, t- that's the first play in which he really, he really takes a man apart. Psychologically, in that sort of prevarication over the, the the crown, and you know Richard III opens, I think, uniquely with a soliloquy. So it's a play about thinking, and particularly Othello is as much a play about thinking and belief, false belief, as anything else. And so we see for quite often in Shakespeare, characters, mostly men, commit themselves often foolishly to mistaken ideas, and we see Shakespeare construct their mental world around that mistake. So I think Shakespeare's really working quite closely with ideas of irrationality and trauma and deeply rooted um, and destructive male anxieties. As an example of Bedlam's sort of extreme lengths that were gone to there for the care or extreme lack of care, I think would be better for Mm. the patients that were there. The refuse and the excrement at Bedlam was quite extreme. Patients were often given only a pot to use for the bathroom. And if they were deemed able, they were allowed to visit a public lavatory. But this facility was woefully inadequate on its own. Given Mm. the general lack of hygiene in the Tudor period, where your average citizen is known to have defecated on the street. Duncan, are these standards for the hospital bathroom conditions at Bedlam shocking for the period in which they're occurring or just offensive to our modern ears because of how far we've come in the development and expectation of sanitation? I don't know quite about visits to the privy, um, but there was a sewer in Bethlehem, which was in 1598 reported as completely blocked up with all different kinds of ways. And one of the problems at Bethlehem was that it was a precinct and therefore it had houses and tenements and chambers. And that meant that people could petition and jostle with one another to get rooms and to uh, establish gardens. And so there are a lot of kind of neighbourly contests, if you like, over, you know, ground, over, you know, who owns what. And what that did is impinge hugely on what happened in terms of care for the mad, because the, the kitchen sink, for example, in 1598 was completely blocked. There was no drainage. So the filth just built up you know, uh, the, the great vault or sewer was reported as needing to be emptied because it was full of you know filth and stench, not fit for any man to come into the said house is the, the report there. So, uh, I mean, and there is also a record, though, of, um, you know, some people, I think, probably did care 
genuinely for the mentally ill at this time. There's an old woman, the wife of Davy Thompson, this is in June 1578, who's given medicines to the poor at Bedlam. And she's ordered that is ordered that she shall have eight shillings a week to keep two lunatic persons in Bedlam in rooms there provided for her to find them diet and medicines. This to continue at the pleasure of the governors. It's reported that she has cured one William Horn and a rich man who was frenzied. And also she has cured many others. So here is an example of kind of, you know, one woman just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's what that's how it looks. About a decade after Shakespeare's lifetime in the 1630s, Donald Lupton writes that the sounds of Bedlam Hospital were enough to instill fear, describing, quote, the cryings, screechings, roarings, brawlings, shaking of chains, swearings, frettings, chafings, end quote, that he observed there. Duncan, are these descriptions accurate or what of what it would have sounded like in Bedlam Hospital? And given the proximity to the theater, would patrons at the theater performance have been able to hear this noise or or had that sound in their mind when they're seeing some of the portrayals of madness in these plays we've mentioned? Mm. Even as you asked me the question, I'm reminded of the statues that were on the gates of um, one of the Bethlehem hospitals, the Southwark one, um, madness and mania. The sort of, yes, absolutely. There's chains, swearings, frettings, chafings, crying, screechings. And all. Yeah, even had the buildings of Bethlehem been in good repair and clean, the uses of irons, restraints and shackles, chains, still meant that it would be a place of appalling misery. And if Shakespeare, I think, ever found the notion of madness funny, if you think of the comedy of errors or possibly Twelfth Night, um, I think Shakespeare changed that view uh, in his, his Jacobean plays seemed to offer some correction to that. So I, I don't think the screams and the cries of the mad would have travelled far across the city. The curtain was situated just to the south of the theatre, it's possible that playgoers would hear the noises as they passed on their way up Bishopsgate Street to the curtain of the theatre. Once they were in the playhouses, the bustle there would probably drown out any noise in the locality. And the Globe, of course, is too far away. It's across the Thames. So I don't think you'd be standing in the yard at any of these playhouses hearing the howls and cries of the lunatics in Bedlam. But I think if you were watching Hamlet or King Lear, possibly even Malvolia in Twelfth Night, you might easily have been put in mind of them. Maybe if they had a conscience, maybe they might have thought we could do this better. There's obviously a lot of history around Bedlam Hospital to be explored. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? The, uh, there's a book called The History of Bethlehem by Jonathan Andrews, Asa Briggs, Roy Porter and Keir Waddington, published by Routledge in 1997. And that is absolutely the go-to book on the history of Bethlehem, on Bedlam as an institution. It's an extraordinary and fairly unique or fairly rare history of an institution, an early modern institution. One of my favourite books of all time is Richard Hunter and Ida McAlpine's 300 Years of Psychiatry, 1535 to 1860. That's OUP, 1963, but it's still a wonderful book. And um, if you can get it on, uh, you know, uh, uh, cheaply secondhand, it's really worth doing. But Michael McDonald's excellent book, Mystical Bedlam, Madness, Anxiety and Healing in the 17th, in 17th century England. That's a book focused on the archive of Richard Napier, the astrologer and medic that I was talking about earlier. And Carol Thomas Neely's Distracted Subjects, Madness and Gender in Shakespeare, uh, Cornell 2004, update of an earlier edition, is very good. 
And I think even now, even though it's rather dated, Robert Reed's Bedlam on the Jacobean Stage is still a useful and good source. I think it's still a good, great book. Just to clarify, the Bethlehem and Bedlam are interchangeable terms here, developed from a colloquial phrase in the 16th century. So when you hear Bethlehem or Bedlam, we're talking about the same hospital. I will link to a further explanation on the term itself, as well as to these resources Duncan recommends in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to see those. Duncan, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life. And since you're visiting with us again, you can choose a different Desert Island book for yourself if you prefer. But my friends in England tell me that I am supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your desert island choice would be in addition to those. Okay, well, on this occasion, Cassidy, I'd like to take The Adventures of Sam Pig by Alison Utley. I think that would be a great choice for sure. Certainly taking an adventure on you on your deserted island would be a nice selection. So what's next for you, Duncan? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm about to write a chapter on the sonnets and I'm co-editing work on Arden of Faversham and I'm very, very interested in Shakespeare's early style as well. So there's lots of projects sort of uh, going on at once. Those are excellent. We'll look forward to seeing those come about and make sure you visit the show notes today to connect with Duncan and see more of his work. Thank you so much, Duncan, for being here this week and taking us on a tour of the history of Bedlam Hospital. This has been an exciting conversation. Thank you so much. As always, the show notes are where it's at here at That Shakespeare Life. You can find links to resources Duncan recommends for learning more about Bedlam Hospital, along with a quick linguistic history for how Bethlehem came to be known as Bedlam and why those terms are interchangeable today, all inside the show notes for today's episode. Stop by and explore Bedlam Hospital further and be sure to leave your comments about what you think about the episode today. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 183. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 183. Don't forget that the video version of today's episode featuring archival images and paintings of Bridewell is available inside the members area of our show. Members get access to our entire video streaming library that includes video versions of our show, award-winning animated plays, documentary films, virtual tours, and even 16th century activities like card games and recipe tutorials where you can cook and play games and foods right from the life of William Shakespeare. We coordinate a lot of this video content with printable history guides, recipe cards, game instructions, worksheets, lesson plans, and other illustrated history resources that let you easily take the history you're learning about here on the show and bring it home with you, where you can try out some of the things from the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more about becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.